Hi there, this is Phil with a special series of the Game Changers podcast. Um, you might have seen Dr. Henry Masoma from Texas Christian University, or as he was then, Texas A&M University, when he appeared on the Ellen program a number of years ago. He's been called the Professor of Kindness. We met a short while ago, and we discovered a mutual interest in talking about and thinking about the notion of good men. So we've got a special series for you of Game Changers with Dr. Henry Masoma. Let's begin. Henry, we're going to talk about um, uh, being a good man today. Why do we want to talk about being a good man? Um, Being a good man matters because men are uh, instrumental in shaping worlds. Uh, You know, we... We're significant in, in the ideas that we, we propagate out into the world and what it can do. We can, dis- we can build and destroy at the same time. So if we can build and we can destroy and we can shape worlds, is there something we're doing wrong as men at the moment in all of that? At the moment, I'd say, yes, there is. Um, and I'll borrow from my native, lang- my native tongue, which is Bemba, you know, where it says... Uh, I don't believe as men we are listening in the way that we should. Not just listening to others, but also listening to ourselves, listening to our callings, and listening to the spaces in which we've been called to make those differences and actually courageously walking into them. I think that's where we're failing, is ultimately to listen to that call and yielding to it. Do you know, I think there might be something enduring about that. If, if I was going to use my grandmother's mother tongue, which was Yiddish, she would say, Mensch tracht und Gott lacht. She would say, you know, men make plans and God laughs. And I think there might, you know, I think there might be something in the book of Proverbs about that even. So it's, uh, you know. Um, that is correct. One of the things that, uh, as you know, that we've been doing over the past eight years is we've, we've had this amazing opportunity um, uh, working with boys' schools all over the world. Um, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from my, my house in, in Fitzroy, the oldest suburb of Melbourne, Australia, at the moment, in a beautiful 1861 Bluestone Cottage. Um, uh, but the work that we've been doing spreads over 15 different countries and, and four different continents, um, including both the one that you're from originally and the one that you're on at the moment, Mayan continent, Asia, Europe. So there's there's a bunch of work that we've been doing with hundreds of thousands of, of, of boys and their parents and their teachers. And all of it is, is trying to work out what's the character of a good man and how do we educate boys for that? And I guess um, one of the things that we learned to do straight away was to ask boys what they thought a good man was. And the answers that came back to us were they were really, really interesting because they were not what I was expecting. So when we asked boys around the world, and there was nearly a thousand of them in this particular sample, the number one thing they told us that, boy, that a good man was is that, is that a good man cares for people by far and away. Would, would you have expected boys around the world to say that? No, sir. I would not expect that. There's this hyper-commercialized masculinity that is sold by way of sports, by way of movies. It's the Terminator. It's it's He-Man. It's it's uh, 
Crocodile Dundee. And all those things, and I don't think that is at the forefront of, of the eight-year-old in a typical school is not thinking a caring man is the man to look up to. I don't think it's fashionable to be that caring man. And yet, and yet, and yet, that's what that's what the sixteen-year-old young man is telling us is is foremost. Uh, you know, there there are five other things that, that that pop up in their responses as well that might even round this out even more. Not only is a good man someone who cares for people, but a good man has moral virtues. A good man is committed to what he does. A good man has good manners. A good man is a dynamic learner, and a good man is a leader. That's the picture that boys around the world, 16-year-olds, are telling us that they want to be and that a good man is and should be. Man, Brother Phil, that gives me a lot of hope. That gives me a lot of hope that if, you know, if that's what they're saying, it, may, it makes me feel that um, they are looking in the right spaces. You know, um, you know, your sample size was this from private schools or public schools? Um, or is it a collection of across the spectrum? So this is um, across the spectrum is a, is a really uh, uh, a good term, I think. Um, uh, so this is uh, government schools. This is independent schools. This is schools in between because around the world there are some schools that are part government and part independent schools. Um, That's this is uh, this is elementary schools. Uh, high school, yeah, school, schools with elementary, middle and high schools, some schools with just high schools. Um, uh, this is faith-based schools and non-faith-based schools. Uh, and we found that there was no difference in the responses based on where the responses were from and uh, in terms of country, but also what type of school. So that of itself I thought was interesting. I'm very impressed at the fact that even say that a, a good leader or a good man is one who is a learner. You know, that that stands out to me. I think in that they these students recognize that a, a good learner to me is somebody who's humble. And, you know, you can't learn if you're not humble, you know, because putting your place yourself in a space of learning is a humble enterprise. And so these young men are saying to us that we ought to be humble by way of saying we ought to learn. So where did you learn about humility from? Wow. Uh, the school of hard knock. <laughs> <laughs> lots of failure. Lots of failure. Lots of failure. You know, um, I like to tell my students that failure is a, great, is a great teacher. And so I'll give you one example. You know, graduated from college in the United States, you know, immigrated from Africa, you know, and uh, came here with a big dream. In fact, I didn't come to America to take a piece of American pie. I came to take a chunk of the American pie. That was my attitude then, right? And then guess what? First job out of college with your master's degree, you're waiting tables. And you find yourself at a restaurant and you're working late at night, so, you know, and you're in the back, you've got your master's degree and you're saying to yourself, who am I? What is my space? You know, what did I do wrong? Am I enough? You know, why am I failing, it feels like. But then in the moment you don't realize that you're actually going through the school of life, and in that you're, you're you're visiting those spaces that you'd never visit had you not failed, and so I believe in those spaces of failure. I have not some not always by choice, but by by life's forcing you to, to to visit that space of humility. That's when I became a good student. Is when things were rough. So so I have two questions that come out of that for you. The first is, 
is adversity necessary to become a good man? And secondly, um, does it serve all of us well to wait tables, serve at the checkout, pump gas? You know, is should that be part of all of our experiences of becoming a man? That we all all of us start with 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 something where you've got to work really hard, you have to question yourself, you don't get paid very much to do it. You know, it's starting from the bottom up. Very necessary. Um, it's kind of it's funny you asked me, yesterday I had a conversation with one of my students who comes from a very privileged background, and he asked me a question. He said, Dr. Misoma, do I have to suffer in order for me to learn what you've learned? Because I shared with him the idea of how the word passion in its root has the word to suffer. Mm. And I said to him, there's something extremely instructive about suffering and that there's something that births in you a passion, that suffering is a crucible for passion. And so in order for you and I to be men of passion, we visit these schools of suffering. And so he, you know, he said, hey, so are you telling me I need to suffer? I said, no, you don't have to suffer. Fortunately, and I believe, Phil, this is why you and I are doing what we're doing right now. I could learn from other people's suffering. You know, I, when I read the book that you wrote, Phil, I read through some of the chapters even today, and you're talking about your relationship with your dad. I believe even in that relationship, you were instructed. And oh, absolutely, absolutely. My, my, my dad was, uh, my, dad was my, my greatest teacher. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I was, I was uh, driving to see a client yesterday in, in Phillip Island in Victoria, and while I was, uh, while I was on the way, uh, I was listening to Bruce Springsteen, and his life, his life show, from you know, live yes. on Broadway, and he's talking about his relationship with his father. And at one point, I think he says, "You know, my father was my greatest hero and my greatest foe," and oh. and and that just got me thinking about my own dad along the way, because like I can recognise a lot of that in in uh, you know, and uh, and I'm sure that um, uh, uh, more than one of my children would probably feel the same way about me as well too. So you know. In fact, I want to ask you a question. Since you're, you're loading me up with so many questions, I'm going to hit you back now. Yeah, good, so your, man. Your dad was an architect, correct? That is correct. So tell me something about his career and how, what did you draw, what lessons did you draw from his career in terms of even masculinity or manhood? In, you know, did he tell you that a man has a blueprint and uh, has to offer those things to others? Or you know, how did he, he use that? background to instruct you in manhood if, if you will i think um, and, it, and it's funny because where i'm sitting right now i can see my father's set square that he used to use and it's it's literally a meter from me right now so it's uh, as i said my greatest hero and my greatest foe um my father instructed me through modeling more than anything else mm-hmm. um like most men of his generation he did not have uh, a, a structure he did not have a knowledge architecture um, to give um, I think the generation that came before him had been fierce in their imposition of a particular model of masculinity and in try to impose it on their son so his response to me was to let me find my own path but to try and show me what he could along the way I think the challenge for my dad was that he was much better with a pen or a paintbrush in his hand than he ever was with words that came out of his mouth. So, but, you know, there's, there's a story in particular I, I can remember about him that um, I, I didn't know very much about him growing up at all. 
um, uh, because he didn't want to impose his past on me. He wanted to allow me to find my own future. Um, yes. He, um, I, I, I do know that when, uh, when he was in the army doing his national service in the United Kingdom back in the, in the 1950s, he broke his neck. Um, he'd, been, he'd been born with um, two vertebrae fused together. And when he went to head a soccer ball into the goal, um, mm -hmm. his neck snapped. And, and he spent years in a brace, sitting bolt upright, trying to do architectural drawings with as a minimum of movement as possible. You know, as a metaphor for making it through tough times, there's a story, isn't there? That not only, yeah. not only you can hang in there, not only you can do your thing, but you can do it with fineness and precision and detail. Um, I think most of the people who would work around me now and who know me personally would say that I have um, an irritating obsession with attention to detail. I want things to work and I want them to be right. I don't need them to be fussy. I just need them to be right. Um, I think I, I learned that from him. Um, the second, the second story I'll tell you about him about um, was when I was uh, an early teenager and he had a business as well as working as an architect. Um, uh, and he used to get me to do the bookkeeping for the business. And I'd have to, you know, pen in the lead, pencil in the ledger and I'd have to get the, letter, the letters and the numbers absolutely perfect. I'd have to get the addition perfect. And then he would show me how to add up columns in different ways. He said, you've got to have four, five, six different ways to add things up. And they've all got to add up in the same way. You know, this morning, again, I was talking with a, a client from, uh, from Canada. We're doing a, a strategic plan for them at the moment. And, um, and I'm ending up saying to them, do you know... I reckon we could have four, five, six different ways that we could put this to you and we've just got to get it right, each one. Like it's, it's my father's lesson coming back to me. and you know. So he taught me through pen, he taught me through pencil, he taught me through, um, uh, he, he taught me through his application. He was a very imperfect man. We're all imperfect men. But gee, he tried hard. Gee, he worked hard. You know, Phil, what that reminds me of is a line from one of the, your pieces where you say, we're all broken and that lets the light in. That's it. It's Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen. Yeah, we're all broken and that lets the light in. And, you know, on that same subject, you know, talking about our fathers, you asked me who taught me humility. Um, I, I would say my father was uh, very crucial in that lesson. Uh, I'll give you a quick uh, example. When I started going to school in the United States, each time that I went home to visit, my father would pick me up from the airport by himself. Mm -hmm. And the first thing he'd say to me is, be humble, mm -hmm. you're home, be humble, you're home. And so for a moment, I thought that maybe my dad was trying to say I was arrogant, you know, or maybe that he suspected that I was arrogant. But I think what he was trying to do is plant this seed in me to realize that, you know what, the fact that you've gone all the way out to America and you're doing what you're doing, is so easy to come back here and look down on people don't ever forget that even though you go and do bigger or better things, however you want to look at it, always remember to be abased. And my dad mm. said that all the time. Be humble. I hated hearing it sometimes. <laughs> but um, And, you know, the word for humility in my language is ukuichefia, which means to make yourself small. So I think men have been taught, we've been taught to make ourselves grand and big, get the big truck, get the big house. 
and nobody's teaching us how to be small and effective like the little ants. Why is it hard to be a good man in our current culture, do you think? I think our culture does not celebrate some of the things that these 16-year-olds brought around. Make sense? Mm. The, our culture does not celebrate the learned as much as it should, you know, hence the underpaying of teachers. And you see the evidence of, at least, I don't know, in Australia, but in America, we don't have as many men in our elementary schools teaching our young men. You uh, know, the, the proportion of male to female teachers is, I mean, at least in my son's school, maybe there's three male teachers, at least that I could think of off the top of my head, and the rest is ladies. And, and you know, that, that's, that's worldwide, Henry. That's worldwide. That's yeah. So the first, you know, so that my young man, my son, probably only has an art teacher and the PE teacher has role models at his school right now that are men. Um, it's hard to be a man because... I think the place of manhood is, I wouldn't call it under, uh, under attack, or, but it's, it's challenged. You know, we, we have to redefine our space. You know, um, we've moved from the model, thankfully, that was come home, sit down, you know, fold your feet, what, read the newspaper and do nothing to uh, a model of partnership, you know, with our spouses if you're married. And then we also now in this model of saying, you know, uh, how... How do we negotiate this space that was so heavily defined by this person who's just a force of nature rather than a person who's willing to be um, fluid? You know, because, you know, when I think of manhood the way I saw it growing up, my dad was a force of nature. We, we yielded all the time. And I think that space is quickly changing um, or rapidly changing. And so we, we're trying to redefine ourselves, Phil. I don't know. Uh, to answer your question, actually, but I know we are redefining ourselves as men. Do you, do you enjoy that process of that that process of redefinition? Good challenge. <laughs> 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 it's a good challenge. Look at my flower on my jacket. Oh no, it's great, man! It's great. I, I, uh, there's some walked up to me earlier on just to show you the remnants of the old man are still in me, and they said, "That's a beautiful flower on your jacket." I said, "It is not a flower." <laughs> I said, it is a man pedal. <laughs> and so right in there, you see a, a person who's trying to struggle between this, the old paradigm of manhood and the new paradigm of manhood, mm -hmm. you know. And you know, you've been to Africa. I grew up in Africa, and you could see manhood in Africa is, whew. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole nother ball game, you know. Well, I think, yeah. I, think, I think it's actually a whole bunch of ball games. I mean, there's there's... There's such a difference in between different parts of Africa, and then when you get into different parts of it, it's, there's such a breadth of what people are trying to do and what they think is right, and 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 so on. And I think, I, I think one of the defining characteristics of our time for men is that, at least in some parts of the world, it's pretty clear that there's some models of masculinity and manhood that are no longer acceptable, and so we need to find a way. But we haven't worked out what those new models are. That's um, right. And, I, you know, when I go to Africa, I, I, I see that in places. It's, it's interesting, you know, I, I, as you know, I mean, you're a well-traveled person. I, 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 I run around the world doing what I do. And, and so I I'm a, I'm a, try to be a polite and respectful visitor in other people's countries. And so That's when right. you go, you can observe and you can look and you can see. And I think we have a problem um, internationally at the moment, which is that we have critiqued an old model. We've demonstrated its lack of validity. Increasingly, um, 
people around the world are saying, you know, not that model, but something else. But the something else is not clear. That is correct. And that's and, what... Uh, well, I was just going to say, that's, that, that's, that's what I'm intrigued by. What is the something else? What can we, what can we be doing? I think, Phil, it leads us to the spot that you, you, you so eloquently wrote about, the idea of kindness. And uh, one of the things that you say in your work that really captures my attention is that, is that kindness characterizes the act of love that allows us to transcend transaction and engage in transformation. And what I believe you're saying to me is this, that perhaps the old model was one of transaction, and now we're trying to find our new space where we're transformational as men. You know, and where we create these worlds that we talked about when we started this conversation or shape these worlds. I don't, the word create is not comfortable with me, especially as a person of faith, uh, because I don't create anything. Uh, but I, I shape things, I hope, you know, that. Um, and so as men, I think we're asking ourselves, what is my space? I don't want to be transactional. I don't want to be give and take, but I want to be transformational. And what does that look like for me? Uh, you're, you're, you're very generous in your reference to my work. I'm going to come back to some stuff that you're quite well known for in a moment too and embarrass you with that. Um, I'm interested in, if and, and I think coming into kindness, I think that's, that's absolutely key. Um, the, you know, the team here at Circle have been, have been bugging me for quite a while to explore this notion of kindness and that, that, you know, that's, that's sitting at the heart of our conversation as well too. I mean, you, you are known as the professor of kindness you know, internationally. So I told you I was going to embarrass you, um, you know, and um, there's, um, there's footage of you um, doing that which comes, comes to you naturally. Tell, tell me this, um, th- there'll be people listening to this who, who don't necessarily um, know the context around uh, where you gained your righteous notoriety um, some time ago. Tell, t- tell me about that. You know, at the university, and I had about 300 students in my class. And uh, on one particular day, uh, I got an email from a young lady who um, said she didn't have childcare. And uh, Phil, I did not look at the university policy. In that moment, I responded to a human being, this student, and I said to her, "You know, I know your childcare fell through, um, but I, I believe you should bring the baby to class." And so she brought that child to class. And while I was teaching, the baby started to walk in front of me. And I mean, crawl. He was nine months old, you know. Uh, And so I picked him up and I held him and I continued to teach. And one of the things I said in that moment, uh, Phil, that a lot of people don't know is I said to the class is that if you have a problem with me holding this child in this class right now, please go ahead and drop my class. Because the problem is not the child, the problem is you. And I hope that, that those words are what captured the young lady's heart. I've never, I haven't asked her what caused her to even start to record. So she recorded about a six second video that she then posted on Facebook and social media. And it went viral in the next few days and had a couple of, uh, a lot of hits across, across the United States and some parts of the world. And the next thing you know is uh, we're invited to do some some interviews and ended up on the Ellen DeGeneres show in L.A., and to which my wife and I traveled to be on the set. And so that was a, a moment that I... I have three H's for you, sir. The first H is, um, in talking about a man, I think a man is a man is a person who acknowledges the humanity in others. Mm-hmm. 
And then number two, the second H is, is a, a good man is a man who, who walks in humor. He's able to laugh, not just laugh at others, but even laugh at himself. Particularly laugh at himself. Yes. And then thirdly, uh, a good man is a, a man who is humble. So humanity, humor, and humility. And all these three start with H-U-M, which in its root is to be grounded of the earth. Mm. So a good man is of the earth. From dust we came to dust we return. A good man is a man that understands that, that his, or his time is limited, and therefore he has to act. So in that moment, I was so thankful that God graced me an opportunity to not transact with this young lady, but to transcend that transaction like you so eloquently say, but to have this transformational engagement that burst into the world sphere. And then all of a sudden, you're watching a clip on the, on the Internet, and it's, it's your clip translated into other languages. And people are talking about how this great phenomena is. And Phil, just to kind of, I don't, I don't know whether you're aware of this. I don't know whether I sent this to you. There was actually a documentary that was made about this, uh, about kindness. And it was called The Golden Rule. It was done by the Merritt Hotels. And it got Laura Ling, a, a local journalist here, to make this documentary. And they interviewed professors out of Oxford. And they kind of try to think through why these things happen, why these phenomena happen. Um, I think a good man knows that he has debts to pay in society because society paid him handsomely. To, to whom do you think we owe the greatest debt? To whom do we owe the greatest debt? I think we owe the greatest debt to our village. And in Africa, we say it takes a village, right? Mm. And so our village, Phil, is right now you're part of my village. I met you just two, three weeks ago, and you're part of my village. What? My university is part of my village. I used to think of the village as that place with the huts in Africa and no running water. But now my village is, is, is you, it's you. It's, it's my, my student. It's my children. Yeah. It's my church. It's, yeah. it's my... You know, it's it's so I, I owe a debt to my village and, I, and I'm going to paint this really well. I appreciate you asking this question. My father, no matter how successful he became and we lived in an urban setting, would always go back to his village. So when it was time for vacation where his colleagues would go to like a tourist resort, my dad would go to the village. And I thought my dad was backwards growing up and he'd mm. take salt, sugar and all kinds of things to the people in the village. And now. I think of my father as, as a man who acknowledged the fact that who he was came out of this deep-seated humanity that he experienced in this village, and he had to go back and pay back. Mm. And so he did that over and over and over and over again. you know. Um, and I believe that because he did that, even some of the goodness that is happening in my life is germinating from the seeds he planted by way of him going back and doing so. So... Can I can I sort of reframe where I think we're getting we're getting to in this conversation? We're we're both interested in talking about good men, and and, and what a good man is. We're both deeply uneasy about some of the older models of masculinity, and wrestling with what a new model might be. We're leaning towards something which starts with kindness and caring. Um, we're acknowledging um, that. We owe debts 
to those around us who put us in the position we're in, which has to be coming from that, uh, from that humility that you talk about. It also prompts us to act um, with a sense of humour because in front of your own village, you can't take yourself too seriously because they've seen all the ugly bits, haven't they? You know, they, they, know, they know what um, um, uh, uh, that's about. And, and, and in that moment, of course, we have to deal with the reality of our humanity, don't we? Because, you know, right. our humanity is, is, is essentially broken, but it needs to be broken because we can't be perfect. We can't be impermeable. Otherwise, you know, the light can't come in. I, I, I'm interested in your moment that you had because that of itself is, is one of those interesting things that it really isn't only an America moment, as we would say over here in the Antipodes, which I, only in America would that happen. Only in America could you have a moment where a man or a woman, but in this case a man, a man acts with love and truth and kindness and suddenly, bang, presents a model which is then held up for everybody to see. That's the light going in through those one of, the, one, one of those cracks of brokenness. I'm interested in the connection between love and truth and kindness. We could talk about that for years, but I'm interested in that. Tell me what you think is that connection between love and truth and kindness. If I have no love, I am a sounding gong, it says, right? Yeah, yeah. 1 Corinthians 13. Yes, I'm a sounding gong. And so my point of departure is um, tied to my faith. Yeah. And... Um, and now about three things, faith, hope, and love. Love. And the, and the grace of this is love. love. And so um, at a place where there's love, there's truth. And a place where there's truth, there's, there's liberation. And I think a man who walks in love and truth is a free man. What's he free from? He is free from the prison of self-doubt, the prison of fear, the prison of not being enough. Because there's, you know, this is why we all love our mamas. Of course <laughs> we do. About, there's something about mom that just makes you feel like you're enough, you know, and so. I believe, you see, you asked me to connect love, truth, and what was the third one? Sorry. Remember kindness. The third one. And which one? And kindness. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, it's hard to arrive at this space of kindness if you don't have this foundation of love, you know? And so for me, when you go back even to that moment with that student, I, I clearly was operating just from a place of love for her as a human being. In fact, Phil, I had this class of 300 people. I didn't even really know her. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she, she was one of 300. But in that moment, it was a love of a human being on the other side that had a need. And the truth was presented to me in a form that self is kindness. Makes sense. Mm. And so I don't, I'm doing justice to what you've asked me. I feel like I'm kind of not getting to it. But I was reading, let me actually, let me even push a little bit further. Somebody, during the course of all that happening, somebody asked me and said, Henry, what's your magic? Make sense? Because people are trying to make it like some magical thing. What is my pedagogical philosophy that is so complex that allows for these magical moments to happen? And I sat on that for a while, and I've recently discovered my magic, Phil. And I just discovered that last week. 
Yeah. My, my father is writing a book or has written a book and I was editing my father's book. And in that book, I found a proverb that is in my native language that says, he who teaches sticks close to his students or should stick close to his students. He who prophesies should stick close to those he prophesies to. And this is from my native language. So I believe that part of this, this idea that I have is deeply interwoven into the fabric of who I am, even from my cultural point of departure. Make sense? Oh, absolutely, it does. Absolutely. Um, the, the sticking close, uh, if, if I can, one of the other bits of our research that we've been doing um, talks about the primacy of a special relationship called character apprenticeship, which is how we teach people how to be good people. And if we're going to teach boys how to be good men, it's an apprenticeship relationship. It's not a direct instruction. It's not lecturing. It's it's getting in close around that. And what we what we can do as the expert is that when a boy asks us to learn from him, uh, sorry, to, to that he might learn from us, we've also got to be prepared to learn from him at the same time, of course. That's correct. Because you have to have reciprocity. You can't. Like there, there might be a, a lack of parity in the relationship to start with because you have expertise, but at some point you actually have to acknowledge his expertise and let him go. You know, you, it, it's it's incumbent in that apprenticeship that you have to reverse the power balance, because otherwise you're not doing your job. Otherwise you're a selfish teacher. Otherwise you're doing it for yourself. You know, but the three things that we do as the expert is that we model, we coach, and we scaffold. So we try and demonstrate through modeling. With coaching, we, we, we provoke and we set goals and we provide feedback. And in scaffolding, we give structure. And it's, 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 it was interesting, you know, when you were talking about being free from things earlier, it's scaffold, scaffolding structure gives you freedom because it gives you the knowledge that there's something that might work that you can try. And then you can invent your own structure in and around it. So it frees you up to actually be, yes. to start with, it's so, so important. The, the novice who's coming to you in this character apprenticeship, they need time to articulate what they are thinking, particularly if they're young boys. You know, because young boys, there's a lot inside and when it, not a lot of it comes out and, you know, it's, they're struggling to work out how to express it and to separate emotion from thinking and feeling and all of those things. They need to articulate, they must reflect and, you know, boys just live in the moment, you know, they, they've got to pull themselves back, you know, take, take five steps back and, you know, just stop and reflect and think, what have I done? What did I intend to do? What's the difference? What might I do next? It's all that stuff that our kindergarten teachers tried to teach us and we weren't listening because we were um, scratching ourselves and looking out the window at the time. Um, and, 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 they need to, and they need to explore. So they need to test out what all the possibilities are. So that's a character apprenticeship thing. We act as an expert. We model, we coach, and we scaffold. And our expert and our novices they they articulate, they reflect, they explore, and 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 we have to let them go. We have to let them develop their own expertise, and then they have to go out and teach it. There's one of the schools that we work with um, in New, uh, in New Zealand. Uh, uh, the boarding house master there, but um, he he talks about the notion of learn, do, teach. And that's important, that we start by learning and then we must do, and then we must teach others. And only till we've taught others do we reach a full expression of our masculinity. Wow. 
you know, it's a really simple expression of that notion of character apprenticeship. Um, we've talked about mod your modelling of kindness. We've talked about our research into character apprenticeship. Um, do you reckon there are other ways to teach kindness and there are other ways to teach about kindness? Other ways to teach about kindness? Um, well, you know, I was very fortunate to have a teacher when I was in uh, 10th grade. She was from India, Mrs. Kuti. Mm -hmm. And one of the things she said to us in our class that I'll never forget is that she said, if you want to remain human, visit a hospital once a month. And uh, I think one of the things that we might not be doing justice with our young people these days is we've isolated suffer pain and suffering from our young people. Um, like my kids probably in America, my kids never see a hearse. That makes sense. Mm. They, you know, even the way the communities are structured, um, hospitals are in isolated spaces, cemeteries are in isolated spaces. So for a while, we have these young men who are driving around, cruising around, not aware of themselves and their their mortality. And so I think there's there's ways that we teach kindness that are not even recognizable to us. Um, I think one of the ways that I was taught kindness that I didn't even realize I was being taught kindness was being sent to boarding school. And then all of a sudden, living with about 100 fellas in a dorm and then having to share a Coca-Cola. And I grew up in a family that was pretty well and pretty privileged. And so having to drink off of a, a bottle of Coke with another person was a huge lesson for me. And in there, I think I started to, to really grow without realizing those were bigger lessons even than the lessons that were taking place in the class. I love the fact that the school that I attended in Zambia, the president of the country had given directives to have uh, lower uh, socioeconomic brackets broken. So those very wealthy students and those very lower socioeconomic students from the villages. And that also taught me empathy because you'd have this young man who'd never been seen electricity before. And when they came to boarding school, it was the first time they're sleeping in a roof, under a roof with electricity, or the first time they're eating sausage. So I, kindness can be taught by exposure. Um, I'm grateful that I was exposed to multiple scenarios. In fact, uh, the first president of my country, Kenneth Kaunda, has this to say. He said, when the rest of the world is done, um, you know, transacting with us in terms of our natural resources, our final export to them will be our humanity. And I think what is beautiful about African culture is this idea of kindness is so interwoven into it um, that from the early onset, you know, and I see this in contrast sometimes to life here in the Western world, um, the idea of the individual is so diminished in, in where I grew up, whereas the idea of the individual here is so exalted. And so the Western paradigm is, I see as a challenge to teach kindness, whereas in the, in at least where I grew up, I could see how that could be easier because of, you know, the point of departure that these young people are coming from. So do you, do you think kindness is actually achievable in our current Western paradigm? Yes, sir. If it wasn't, I'd quit teaching. Excellent. I'm really glad you say that. Tell me then, what's your work 
now? What are you doing now? What What's your teaching now? Uh, your, what's your trajectory? So um, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be uh, what do you call it sarcastic. I I, uh, I teach students. I don't teach a subject matter. I, I teach students, and I think one of the exciting things I'll give you an example. So I'm in the business school here, and I'm teaching a course called Business and Society, and it's a really exciting course. It's a required course for all business school students in our college. And yesterday we're talking about economic frameworks, and so we were contrasting between uh, capitalism and socialism. And one of the things I did in my class immediately off the bat is to say, I am not here to intellectualize this subject matter. My choice is to humanize it. And I love what you say in your work. I'm going to keep going back to your work. It is a fiction to separate the subjective from the objective. The hope in my teaching in my classes is that I am subjectifying which most people objectify, that I'm humanizing where most people choose to intellectualize. And so even in the business world, I believe that I am a cultural agent of change in as far as shaping what I hope to be a different business model that our students will execute. And so this lines up with this, with this talk today when you and I are talking about the old paradigm and the new paradigm. I am telling my students that it is possible to act in a way, even in a business, that strongly considers the humanity that is behind every statistic that you'll ever encounter. That I tell my students, business is about people. It is personal. And so my trajectory is this. I hope that in the next five, ten years, in fact, not hope, I, I, I look forward to you know, putting out some books and uh, being a, uh, an ambassador of sorts uh, around the globe to remind people that, yes, we are, the bottom line matters, but guess what? Behind every bottom line, there's a story, there's people, and people matter. And so I'm excited that even when you and I connected, you talked about the work that you all are doing um, with your organization, and you talked about how we're trying to shape good men. I came home really excited. I thought, wow, there's people actually that care about that. And uh, because sometimes it does feel like Lone Ranger kind of work. You know, you, you know it feels like uh, people are more concerned with the intellect than the um, than the human. Uh, look, you, you, you're very kind. Um, the, the wonderful privilege that we have in doing the work that we do is that, is that we get to reflect the kindness and hard work and compassion of tens, hundreds of thousands of people all over the world doing what they do. It's, it's a rare privilege to be the conduit for that kind of, uh, that kind of care and compassion. Um, uh, and uh, and I guess that point about the subjective and the objective, um, you know, I can I can I can point to someone who works for me, and that's their that's their point, you know, that's that's the point that that, that they make in and around stuff. Um, it's the same point about you can't always be thinking forward. Sometimes you just have to be in the present, you know, and and and, and, and you have to be thinking about yesterday as well to. Uh, uh, too, you know, it's, it's yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's not any one of those things. It's um, it's me, you, and us. Um, it's 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 um, what matters to me personally and subjectively, and what the world is asking me to do objectively, and how I wrestle between the two. I, do you know, sir? I would be very, I would be very flattered if you'd um, if you come back and have another chat with me another time. I wonder whether we might talk about that change piece next. 
because if being kind is an essential piece of being a good man and and if as you say learning is a key element to that and all learning is is changing learning is how to how to how to move towards the man you need to become rather than to stay stuck as the man you are today i wonder whether we might talk about that that learning that becoming that changing next time we talk in fact, Phil, I'm kind of excited about something different from that, a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, it's something that comes up in some of the pieces I read from y'all, and it's the idea of unlearning. Mm. I wonder whether the greater work is in the unlearning more than the learning. Well, let's do those together. That'd be fabulous, learning and unlearning. Perfect. <laughs> Absolutely Perfect. done. Absolutely yes. done. Um, I'm, I'm, I've, I've really enjoyed learning with you today, Henry. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much, Phil. It's, it's been a pleasure. It's been a blast. Excellent. Let's talk again really soon, and away we go. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. That's the first in a series of six special episodes of the Game Changers podcast. Um, this is me, Phil. I've been talking with Dr. Henry Masoma, my new brother, and internationally acknowledged professor of kindness. We look forward to the next one. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Please buy Samuel Wiseman for all the productions. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe.